Kia ora and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name's Pip Adam and in this episode I am speaking with Renian Thomas who is a writer and musician um, who was born in South Wales but lives here in Wellington now. Um, Renian's writing has appeared in places like The Pantograph Punch, Sport, Hue and Cry and Turbine and um, he's released music with The Body Liar and um, Strangers. But today we got together to talk about Milk Island which is Renian, it's described on the back of his book as um, Milk Island is the absurd and unhelpful first novel of Wellington-based writer Ridian Thomas. It is 100% pure fiction. So there you go. Um, it's published by Lawrence and Gibson um, and yeah, it's a pretty special book. It's pretty freaking cool. Um, so we have a chat about that and I've made a decision that I'm going to read the blurb. I'm going to try and read it without like messing up any of the words that are in the blurb but I'm going to read that just because Ridian and I very quickly start to talk about um, yeah the structure of the book and if you haven't read the book it might be useful to hear this although I would highly recommend rushing out right now buying it and then reading it and then listening to this however you like to do it anyway this is the blurb as it appears on the back of the book a freelance farming journalist travels south with the press gallery on a behind-the-scenes tour of New Zealand's reconstructed South Island. A new inmate inside Christchurch Men's Dairying Prison wails a tale of blood and milk to the interactive avatar of comedian Billy T. James. A private agri-prison operator juggles two escapees and a political hit, with far too much of her money and pride riding on a prison fight. A rogue Twitter account wanders the wilderness of Milk Island reporting on environmental collapse under accusations of domestic terrorism. As the 2023 New Zealand election approaches, four cruel and unusual stories expose the inner workings at the heart of Milk Island, the former South Island, where a fifth-term gener- fifth government's legacy project is going very well or very poorly, depending on who you ask. On Milk Island, patriotism and prosperity trumps all else and life matters very little unless you're Milky Moo, the nation's favourite cow. Um, So when I stop talking, you'll hear me um, again reading the first section of this book, um, which I think also helps to give you an idea of it. Um, it's, It's serious and very funny. I like my favourite kind of thing. If you are around New Zealand over the next couple of months, um, you will get to see Ridian. Um, First of all, if you are in Auckland on the 18th of August at 7pm and you are in the Time Out bookshop, you will get to see Ridian reading with um, um, Dominic Hui and Ria Masai, um, which will be amazing. And then, if you happen to be in Dunedin on September 7th to 10th you'll get to see Ridian Reid at the New Zealand Young Writers Festival an amazing festival by the way it would be worth travelling to Dunedin from September 7th to September 10th 2017 just to go to that festival it's blinking awesome blinking awesome <laughs> I'm trying to cut down on swearing anyway I hope you get to see Ridian um, Reid and I hope that you enjoy this um, um, conversation with him it was grand thank you very much One, witness. A pastoral scene, Milky Moo, the nation's greatest cow, is being emptied by a humble shear milker under the light of an April sun in Kaikoura. 
The cow, famous and beautiful, is indifferent to the labour underway below her, and the sheer milker gently tugs away, handling her with the patriotic care and pride she deserves. The milk spills easily. All is well in New Zealand and God's grace is everywhere. Milky turns her head and sighs. It's noon and she's hungry. She settles her eyes on a woman and an older man standing beside three stacked bales of hay near the back of the cow shed. The man is leaning against the haystack and laughing, waving something away with the swish of his hand. The woman laughs too. Milky is tired. Milky is bored. The sheer milker, a rather grim chap with a hidden limp, finishes the job and rises from his stool. He takes the metal bucket from beneath her and raises it above his head. There's a cheer from the 20 or 30 people watching and hands begin to clap, first a crackle, then a cascade. But Milky doesn't care for the applause, the fanfare, the merchandising rights. To put it bluntly, she's been genetically bred to deliver 56,000 kilograms of milk every year for the pleasure of various people around this strange nation, and her predilections are irrelevant. Ultimately, she remains unmoved by her destiny. At six foot five and weighing a tonne and a half by full maturity, Milky Moo is the greatest cow in New Zealand's brief history, and she can feed over 500 folks a year. She moves and the applause returns. Her eyes are fixed on the man and woman who are either arguing or flirting. Milky Moo can't tell which is which. Despite her advanced state, she doesn't yet speak English. A postpartum dribble of milk seeps from her teat and drops to the concrete floor below, wasted. She takes a step towards the couple and they adjourn from conversation to return her gaze. They are curious but hardened too cynical to love her fully, the way her perfection demands. Without warning, Milky Moo rears up on her hind legs and takes another step forward, standing fully upright like a human to the dumbstruck awe of her spectators. She's beautiful, grotesque, lithe, necessary. She takes to one leg and pirouettes on it deftly before returning to all four. The crowd gasps and balks, snickers, and salivates, crows and giggles. The large silver fern enshrined on Milky Moo's thigh where the black hide meets white is the de facto national insignia of New Zealand and is the key branding symbol for both Milk Island and the fifth term National Party government. Again, Milky Moo doesn't care about any of that. People are always staring at her, but that doesn't mean they understand her. They can never see the world as she does, in total submission. With a single preparatory breath, Milky clears her throat. She trots closer to the man and the woman, her weight swaggering about. She smiles, winks, and groans that famous catchphrase aloud. Wow, 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 she says, and the crowd moo along in delight. Okay, so here we are. Um, my name is Pip Adam and I'm here with Ridian Thomas. How are you? Hello, I'm good, thanks. That's good. Did I pronounce your name right? Ridian? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. That's, That's good. I'm very aware. Um, I was with some people from Wales the other day and I'm very aware that there's a language um, sort of renaissance revolution happening there. Well, I suppose it's been happening for a long time, eh? Yeah. I mean, struggle goes back many hundreds of years. Uh, 
I think you know the the idea that the English prevented us from speaking Welsh there once has meant we now well we have a, a series of Welsh language schools where you can't speak English so I was raised in Welsh and yeah. um, you were punished at the school for speaking English um, nice yeah, <laughs> yeah. so uh, I mean people didn't like it's kind of uncool to speak Welsh somehow so kids always spoke English to each other but in lessons we learned everything in Welsh yeah which was uh, interesting moving here then yeah in England a periodic table in Welsh all <laughs> <laughs> oh, right and then, yeah. That sounds so great. It's such a great language. Um, I was in, I was with some friends the other week, and they um, oh, this is ages ago, and um, they're New Zealanders, but they live in Cardiff. Is that Cardiff? Yeah, mm. Cardiff. And um, yeah, their daughter is just acing Welsh language. Like oh. she's like this little Kiwi with her. <laughs> she's just picked up Welsh. Not so good at science, but very good at Welsh. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Very that's very cool. Anyway, we're not we're not totally here to talk about Wales, but we are here to talk about your magnificent book, Milk Island, um, which was published this year. Eh? Mm-hmm. How many months has it been out since about March? No, uh, June. June first, first day of winter, <gasps> and uh, World Dairy Day apparently, or oh something my. like that. So. Well, very, very appropriate. Very All appropriate. Totally accidental, but um, <laughs> you know, I'll take that. I love it when a thing happens like that accidentally. Um, now, the first thing I wanted to talk about, like this is an impressive book. It's an exciting book. I just, I just absolutely love this book, um, and it's not. Um, it's it's a complex book which I really like, and there's something happening in its structure that I've sort of got an opinion on, but I'd be really interested if you could talk a little bit about um, how the structure came about for the book, like how it kind of works. Um, I've sort of written down how it works as a machine, but it does feel like a machine. Like there's a lot of machinery in this book, but it seems to work in a very, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how the structure of it works? Yeah, Um, I think machine-like is probably pretty appropriate. I mean, it's been through so many different iterations structurally since I started on it that the final form is probably where I rested and I could have could have changed again. Essentially, at the beginning, it was a fairly straight novel with different characters kind of chopping in and out chapter by chapter. Um, but I've found with the movement of time in the novel, given that it um, kind of jumps forward and back over a period of about six months to a year, that having kind of four self-contained stories that cause and influence each other but aren't necessarily kind of temporally one after the other. Mm. Um, That was the best way I could get across a plot that had those relations. So uh, mechanically speaking, yeah, I I guess the structure is, you know, some, uh, there are four stories I should say, some of those happen over one day, some of them happen over six months, Um, some precede the others and vice versa but um, yeah I think I I, I suppose that's about as mechanical as Mm, it gets really having those four just kind of have kind of recurrent characters as well appearing in different people's perspectives because the chapters are obviously written in different voices as well and having that kind of chunk structure of four chunks in a row as opposed to chapter by chapter means you can really play with voice because I would find it really hard to jump, for example, between the grammatical setup of some of the chapters straight through to the more straight plotted mm. stuff, whereas other sections are more linguistically free. Mm. So yeah, that's how I ended up with the four, just mainly for voice, but then still trying to maintain that causal structure within the plot. Yeah, because I think that's one of the most rewarding things about the read is that you are um, 
There's this great quote, and I don't know who said it, that you're often reading um, in anticipation of understanding. And like that's what I really loved about this book is that there was a very puzzle kind of feel to it. Like especially, I think, when um, we go to the second um, um, section, uh, chunk, mm. I think, you know, when, um, you know, like we are suddenly, it is the second one that's in... Yeah, this one. Um, yeah, like, I mean, where it is very free linguistically and it is, a, you know, at play is a voice, but there's been this wonderful kind of um, cantilevering into it from the first section, which is really, really nice. Um, one thing I was interested in about that second section is that it does, um, it, it does seem like it would be a taxing voice to write in. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, um, did you, did you, and it sounds like this isn't what happened, but putting all of that together in writing, was that days and days of being with that voice or was it more um, dipping in and out of it? Well, this is a funny one actually because I wrote this that second part first before anything else had Excellent. been written. Yeah. So I actually, you know, it had been about three years and I was like, I need to fucking write this thing. I need mm. to stop planning. Mm. And I think I'd had a bad day at work, bad <laughs> life. No, um, I just did It's bad. always a good motivator. <laughs> yeah. It had been a, a shitty time anyway, and I sat down on a Friday night after work, and I was like, oh, maybe I'll make a few kind of prosy notes. And then I just kept going and kept going, and then it was Sunday, and almost Monday morning, and I had to go back to work, and the whole thing was done. Mm. So there was about 18,000 words I knocked out at first yeah. in one go, and because of the style and, I guess just the general kind of mode of expression of it, it was ranty, you know, and I could rant and then trim later. So I, it wasn't fun to write, it wasn't pleasurable, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I still believe a little bit in catharsis through art, so I got some of the uglier stuff inside me <laughs> out of there in one go, you know. It was a bit of an exorcism. Um, and it is beautiful. I mean, like, for me as a reader, it's so nice to... Um, you know, in the, in the first section and maybe the third, you know, the Cathy Industries, I always think of it as that section, but, <laughs> you know, like, these both seem to be looking at the, um, perhaps the people that live in Milk Island, you know, from the outside, but to get that inside view, I thought it was really, it was really great. And it seemed to come at exactly the right point. Was there ever a stage where that bit came first? Or? Um, I don't think that ever would, I think what I, I remember thinking... I couldn't get away with putting this first because it's too <laughs> crazy and that people wouldn't keep reading. And I felt like I needed uh, an independent third-person voice to come mm. first to kind of set the conditions of the world because, I mean, the whole, I guess, background to that character is how unreliable his narration is. So um, to get the kind of scepticism in, I had to have a sense of what the, the claimed reality was mm. first. So. For me, it was always I had to have a first section that set up the front face of an island, so what the people think something is, and to do that was you know the media industry, the tourism industry, before getting into the inside of the island as actual inner workings, which are in the presence mm. and the daring. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think I'd always had some version of a third person narrative first, mm. but um, I mean, shit, I went through three or four big drafts. I rewrote the entire first quarter of the book three or four times, mm. um, and ditched a pretty significant character that's now totally absent for the book but had been the whole spur for the whole thing and now he doesn't exist in it so and what um that's that's um ballsy 
<laughs> but they must have felt I, I don't know having made decisions like that myself yeah. it kind of it is it's almost like you're cutting off a limb and go oh fresh yeah. air this is great yeah yeah and I was yeah. I was quite precious about it too it took Murdoch yeah. um, my publisher Lawrence and Gibson really telling me this character is not that interesting he's not that great and there's not much to him um, yeah. and he was totally right about it and yeah. you know I resisted for a little while thinking I could save it you know it's that question of do you try and trim around the edges or just burn the whole thing and eventually I just had to to, to give it up and mm. that was fine worked out for the best yeah I I, well I mean having not read that version I don't know but I think it was working tremendously well um I really like that um word that that phrase that you use claimed reality for the world and I really I, I really um I one of the most impressive things about this book is that it looks forward um, to a time you know that at some point our New Zealand and the New Zealand that's in the book has you know split mm -hmm. um, and then I'm just wondering what and I mean there's no there's no rules for this but I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about you know what it was to extend like you use this great phrase heaps which I looked up um, uh, when you extend the absurd What's that called? Uh, Reductio ad absurdum. That's yeah. it, yeah. Can My favourite form of philosophical I argument. I love the idea. Can you talk a little bit about it? I looked at Wikipedia and I don't feel confident. I mean, <laughs> I guess a way of thinking about it is like slippery slope reasoning in philosophy. So my favourite example is, if you think back to marriage equality, when the bill um, was being debated and you had these absurd claims by people like Family First and um, Destiny Church saying, well, oh, pretty soon people will be marrying their cats and dogs oh, and, yeah, yeah. and so on. And, you know, people Logical. will have tadpoles <laughs> that they've unstable threesomes with and <laughs> so on. Like, so, you know, you take the premises of an argument and basically reduce it to its own absurd conclusion. And in philosophy, that's a stricter kind of logical objection to the foundational premises of an argument. In mm. a social sense, I think of it more just like, Slippery slope reasoning, which I hate, which is terrible. I mean, slippery slope reasoning is responsible for lots of, you know, right-wing conservatism and objections to progress. Um, but it's nice to turn that back around at the conservative right. And, yeah. You know, say, do the PC, what if, what if, <laughs> national, what if. And I just think that's what's so satisfying about it is that you do, um, you know, it, it is a world where um, there are some recognisable people, you know, there are mm -hmm. some recognisable situations and there's a hideous kind of, um, it, it's horrific really to watch some of it and think, I could totally, I totally buy that. I totally buy that. And I'm just wondering what um did was what kind of imaginative exercise was that? Like, did you just sit and go mahaha, and, and or did you, did were you consuming? I'm just wondering if the time that it's written in mm -hmm. is apparent in this, you know, this this end of the slippery slope. You know, like yeah. I mean, I'm. I've always try and see the most absurd angle you can with political promises mm. because it's fun and you know but I don't know how to put this um, I mean I think there are natural consequences to government policy that you can foresee um, mm. some of those are in the book as straight as they are so degradation of our rivers for example mm -hmm. that's yeah. uncontroversial climate change um, our emissions are increasing that's uncontroversial uh, but if you take the current ethos and again apply that slippery slope reasoning to stuff like journalism mm. and bring in kind of intern culture and um, pay to play 
that sort of thing, you know, then you can produce some policies, for example, that don't exist. Well, actually, they probably do exist in some form already, <laughs> but contracting culture and, and things like that. And that's where I know I try to go beyond just a political critique and make it funny. Yeah. Um, because I don't think anybody just wants to read my ranting about politics. So giving a humor and life and, and personality to the people involved is kind of crucial in getting that criticism across. But um, I also <laughs> I also think it's just a, a believable reality that we will have five terms of national. Mm-hmm. Um, Completely. Yeah, and I mean, uh, maybe my maybe my pessimism's wavering a little bit at the moment. There seems to be a tiny bit of hope in there. Uh, actually, maybe not. Um, <laughs> but you know, so to that end, I was genuinely thinking about what would 2022, 2023 look like under a national government. And sure, it probably won't be a sealed off agricultural prison on the South Island. But, you know, you take concepts like, um, you know, prison internship work schemes and things like that. You take a growing dairy herd and the amount of land being converted to pasture um, from forest and not that far away to me because I was even thinking like the debate that's going on at the moment everybody wanting to have a um oh I'm even scared to say it because I sound like a pig but you know (laughs) everybody wanting to have a conversation about immigration you Mm. know I was even thinking about um a lot of the horticulture that's run by you know labor that's coming from outside and there's a lot of conversation about how we just can't get Kiwis to do this work and like I just it just feels so yeah, it is. It is really yeah. But it's also funny. I um I I really don't want to um you know make it sound like it's a real diary because it is exceptionally funny. Oh, thank you. And um I yeah, life out loud funny. I was there were points where um people would come and check if I was all right in my bed. Like, ah! <laughs> um, but oh, that's good. I'm glad. <laughs> um, I do. I I am interested in um, I mean, in this you may have already answered this, but I am interested in how dairying and prisons go so well together like I sort of hadn't like I've had because I'm you know like an old lady and I'm vegan and like no one's vegan anymore but you know like I I do you know it's not hard for me to think of uh, you know and and Milky Moo who is the cow um in here is just such a um sympathetic and wonderful character <laughs> oh, probably not intentionally um probably just crazy vegans like me um but I just I just wonder how did though I can see your reasoning that you just talked about there, but mm. can you talk a little bit about you know this idea of prisons and dairy? Like, yeah, like I don't know. Um, I, I guess it's more, I mean, it doesn't seem to me like there is a growing natural connection between prison work schemes and private dairying operations at the moment. To be honest, the very first spur from it was laughing at the idea of the federated farmers and the sensible sentencing trust to very powerful <laughs> industry voices well I say powerful they're kind of ridiculous but they do hold significant sway over um, certain parts of, of government and social culture more broadly so looking at their logos side by side made me laugh <laughs> and I thought you know you could solve and there was that thing two birds with one stone you know if you'd had a, a tragic earthquake that had destroyed most of the South Island you had to quickly rebuild it and you still had um, kind of the same problems like a, a growing prison muster that mm. isn't getting any smaller and isn't likely to get any smaller um, and you had this still kind of one track economic strategy that was all about dairying and mass volume um, that maybe those two would end up coinciding somehow mm. so 
I guess the foundation in, in reality is in those working prisons. So um, things like you know the um, Mount Eden Correctional Facility, I think, and Wirree as mm. well, the new South Auckland um, Men's Correctional Facilities, and their work schemes where they pay prisoners very, very poorly to mass produce stuff. And typically, it's seen in New Zealand as a really good thing for prisoners to get to work hard. And I'm sure there are plenty of things to be said for activity for prisoners and, and you know skill learning it doesn't really seem like that in practice um, it seems more like correctional sweatshop mm. and yeah it's just kind of then applying that to um, to dairying as well and it's like it's really interesting because I think um, it's also that thing where um, I think one of the impacts um, possibly of the privatization of prisons in Auckland is that a lot of smaller businesses like there was a business that used mm. to cater for all the courts you know and that was their job but now of course that's been outsourced to much yeah. cheaper prison labor um, I mean that was one of the that was one of the real um that the section that I am calling the Kathy industry session I need to call it something else no, that's good. That's, is it all right to call it that? yeah yeah so um you know that um is just it's just such a beautiful um, section, you know, like this whole idea that, um, well, there are, there does appear to be um, a fight club going on in the prison. Mm. There does appear to be sale of prisoners in and out. Um, one of my favourite hilarious moments is where people are kind of negotiating their wages kind of on the run, which just seems like this great extension of zero-hour contracts <laughs> and everything like that. Did you... Um, was it? I suppose it was easy just to do a lot of that um, imaginatively. But did you do much research into prisons at all, or like? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, <coughs> I want to. I want to boldly claim right now that the prison fight clubs existed prior to the big circo news <laughs> being broken, oh which my was God. which was quite terrifying. <laughs> you know? um, that is terrifying. Yeah, I oh mean, everybody gosh. knows prisons involve fighting, yeah. and often in an organised fashion. There've been reports of kind of orchestrated bouts that guards oversee and things like that especially in the private prisons um so yeah i mean that when that happened and it was you know calvin davis from the labor party mm, mm. breaking that with this cell phone footage and everything that was quite a shock to me god um, that must have been really hard <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was funny um in a, in a sick kind of way <laughs> but there were a few things like that that happened during the writing where it got too close to home but um I'm just trying to go back to your question. So that was... Oh, just um, about your research. I just remember research, you saying yeah, that yeah. you'd looked over... Um, had you looked over some like maps of yeah. set up and that sort of thing? Yeah. So I was very interested in Wirree while it was mm. being um, kind of consented for uh, by this uh, Secure Future Consortium, mm. which mm. represents... Circo and you didn't um, make up that name, did you? No, that's the oh, real that's name. That's their yeah. name. Oh so my they're God. The, the group. They have a twenty-five year contract to run Circo. Twenty-five. Um, yeah. So you know, if we wanted to pull out due to I don't know human rights violations or whatever, it would cost the, the government quite a lot of money to pull out of that. Unless, of course, they were failing their KPIs. But then we would probably never know that. So yeah, uh, I'm getting off track again. No, so. I think off track um, is good. Off track is a good place to be. Yeah. <laughs> In the book of so um, I guess a lot of that information would have been public and you would have been able to read about it and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. I mean, full disclosure, I was doing research as well on my work. I was working for the Green Party at the time. Oh, um, uh, so I did a bit of research there. But um, mainly, I mean, my interest in prisons is global. It's not just about New Zealand. And particularly, um, I think I talked about this, that uh, thingy we did with oh, Don. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. The... There's a Louis Theroux documentary pairing called Miami Mega Jails oh, that yeah. really got me going. Yeah, um, yeah. Which was about these people on remand um, 
who'd been in jail basically for upwards of two or three years and were living in giant self-managed units of 24 plus prisoners um, and the guards solution to the I guess problems of violence and overcrowding was to stop entering the cells individually and allow a power structure to evolve within them uh, within the cells so I mean that's represented physically and stuff like which bed you sleep in how high up you are and so on both in reality and in the book mm. Um, mm. and yeah I mean that was their solution and I saw that as kind of like the I mean it's like the capitalist paradigm right like mm. you help help others help um, like, you know they help themselves whatever bullshit version uh, to spin from that but um, yeah just this idea that order would evolve naturally and the most powerful would control order um, mm. so I borrowed that quite a lot from that as far as the actual physical prisons go I mean it's really hard to get any information by OIA about almost anything from the Department of Corrections mm-hmm. especially when it's private prisons because there's a commercial incentive they argue usually against the release of information especially proactively um, so I think the Nats used to be a bit more careless with leaving stuff online and often contractors will brag about the work they're yeah, doing online yeah, so yeah. there were some maps of worry around um, you know and I, I mean I didn't actually really end up inspired by the physical structure of it because it's it needs of, a dairy um, factory in there yeah, as well. Yeah, it does, yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah. And it needs to look like Gondor from Lord of the Rings. Cause oh, that's, that's right. If you were going to rebuild a <laughs> prison city, I mean, you would do it in the style of Gondor because Lord of the Rings is the greatest film ever, right? And what else have we got going for us as New Zealanders, exactly. really? I mean, holy shit, holy yeah. shit. Um, there's one character in here that I really wanted to talk about who is Nina. And I was really interested in the idea of Nina... Um, sort of like her radicalization perhaps i don't know if that's the right word you can disagree with me totally this is just my reading um but i'm really interested because she doesn't sometimes these heroes and sort of future books seem like people from our time with our sensibility that sort of been dropped into the future and can Mm -hmm. see that this is bad and this is wrong but there's something really clever about nina where she seems both sort of indoctrinated but also an activist against yep. and I just think I just think that is so fucking brilliant <laughs> and so much more compelling you know like she loves the cow and she loves I don't know can you talk a little bit about the genesis of her maybe or maybe mm. what it you know like how do you get a truly believable future psychology like I don't know yeah I don't know it's a t- it is a tough one because um I mean, I'd always had that in mind that, so first of all, you see her from a third-person perspective as a kind of semi-innocent narrator who's maybe a little bit in over her head, but not really get too much at her internal world early on, and then come right back to her at the end. I'm kind of giving her the premise of the novel. Oh, no. no. I don't. I realised. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all, it's all good. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to read it anyway. <laughs> they but, should. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it was like having that fourth part where you really get her internal voice to like a a displeasing um, introspective level like a, a, a like a narcissism that's kind of revolting but also kind of understandable from a, a generational kind of yeah. shift about the importance of writers activists and, and journalists you know and that sense of being a guerrilla brand trying to make your way compete against people who are doing the same work as you um, maybe from other networks, maybe from other activists, 
Yeah. And it's, I mean, we see the, it is the bitchiest thing in the world, right? The left wing, we yep. all despise each other. Um, and we're all competing to be the best activist and the rest of it and calling each other out constantly and the rest of it. So, I mean, I wanted to capture that as a natural reaction. I mean, it's not like a hyperbolic version of, of like a, a Twitter person or whatever. Like these, you know, Nina is a has an emotional sympathy, I hope. Yeah, but, uh, she, she totally does. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just like opposed to good characters. Like no one should be good, mm. I don't think, because mm. people aren't good. No. They're either medium or terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, she's, you know, getting, uh, her, getting her story in there is uh, recognising we all have something kind of terrible in us, even when we do things that are objectively kind of noble-seeming, like, roaming around as an activist yeah. trying to sabotage a giant dairy prison island um, yeah. but you can do that for a multitude of reasons not just because of kind of like some political utilitarian concern but also because of vanity and yeah. economic reasons and um, I mean existential reasons right we all want to feel like something matters and <laughs> yeah. Nina's trying to do that um, when mm. her actions clearly don't really matter that mm. much. So, yeah, it's about being listened to and not being listened to, I guess. Yeah, because that's what I think so interesting centering her as someone who, uh, you know, that... Oh, sorry, I'm going to go off on a tangent. But I'm no, just no, thinking, it's good. Like, tangent's I'm good. just thinking that, that awesome thing where, um, you know, she she is someone who is producing work which is consumed, you know, people are consuming it, but it's under such a tight rein mm-hmm. in the first section, you know, from her producer and, you know, the, those people. And it just, I don't know, like, I just think it was such a, I don't know, I just think it's a really, really um, clever take because I know, I just think, you know, like, I mean, yeah, I was just thinking back to sort of animal activist things and, you mm. know, like, there is, some of the worst people I've met have been doing some of the best things. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Um, I always think, you know, does it matter if it, you know, like, mm. I don't know, it's really confusing, it's super confusing. Yeah, it kind of, to me, it almost comes back to, like, that really basic philosophical division between how you view people's actions in either a utilitarian fashion or a Kantian fashion yeah. where intention is important and... You know, I genuinely think that if intention is what we judge the quality of actions on, then we're fucked. Like, yep. Because <laughs> a whole lot of us intend real good and do really bad. A lot of us intend really bad and end up doing good things in, in pursuit of it. So, in a sense, I'm sympathetic to Nina being a kind of terrible person because she's trying to create something and produce yeah. something external to herself. Uh but it doesn't make reading her mind particularly fun. <laughs> no, no, and I think that is that is one of the things that I was also impressed with is the balance between um, really hard stuff to you know there's some there's some quite extreme violence in here and some quite extreme um, anyway there, there's extremes. Mm. But um, did I guess I mean it's so hard to ask because while you're writing I don't I don't feel like I'm making those decisions while no, I'm writing it. Absolutely not. They just kind of come out, right? Yeah, and you just write towards something, and mm. oh, there we go. I'm I don't know. In my case, I'm usually killing animals or chopping people's arms <laughs> off or something. But yeah, yeah. I, I think it is really interesting. But I think the book has a really good balance of that, especially in the end. Not too fucked up. Not. No. Not well, I didn't think so, but then maybe I'm not a good judge. Uh, some people have said that they found parts of it hard to get through for those reasons, like felt a, a bit sick somebody told me they, they needed to have a lie down <laughs> um, which is good you know I'm fine with that uh, I we don't all, 
we all read for different reasons, eh? Absolutely, and I don't think we should just read pleasant things. And I, I'm just, I grew up on shock and vulgar things and violence and the rest of it. And like, that's the kind of aesthetic I like. I can't escape that. I couldn't write a nice version of Milk Island if I tried. There is always going to be violence. And it, it's about being truthful to reality as well. Mm. Like, lots of really terrible things happen in New Zealand and lots of really violent things. And maybe some of the sexual stuff doesn't happen in reality I don't know <laughs> but uh, it is but I mean I think it is interesting because I think like to turn away from those things would have felt so the yeah the world yeah it would have just fallen apart in a lot of ways to hmm, me yeah um so what um what do you can I ask I, I hate putting people on the spot because like right. anytime someone asks me what I'm reading I'm like uh don't oh, know yeah, yeah. uh so but what who, like when you think of authors that you like or authors that you might pick up to you know feel better about writing and reading mm. can you think of any of those yeah yeah absolutely um uh i did a lot of that actually like i don't i don't really you know i don't really read to write you know like mm. i don't have that um need to read a whole bunch and then start writing or get inspired by reading for i write like i maybe i'm a bit of a puritan about it but i mm. just try and get it done internally like yeah. some yeah yeah, it's totally a Puritan sensibility, but um, so I went back to things where I love the prose. So stuff like Journey to the End of the Night by Celine, it's my oh, yeah. probably my favourite novel, I guess. Um, back to books that structurally were of interest to me. So like The Sound and the Fury mm-hmm. and um, The Counterfeiters by Andre Gide. Um, that was another big one. And more recently, like I'm reading now. Uh, what am I reading now? Um, James G. Leclesio, so I finished The Book of Flights and that just blew my mind, like one of the most incredible books I've ever read, and um, so I'm reading his first book now, The Interrogation. Um, yeah. What else? I just finished Edward Lovey's Suicide, Oh yeah. Um, which is pretty beautiful. I'm nodding. I know these books. I have not read. I want to now go home and just read all of them. <laughs> no, Because I'm just thinking, dickens. those are books that, you know how books that continue to come into your universe? I was just thinking, yeah, these, yeah. these are books that continue to come into my universe. It's like I'm still catching up on a lot of this yeah. stuff, you know? Like, I don't really read a lot of modern literature because I feel like I have to get through so much um, yeah. past. And it means maybe I'm not that contemporary with my author references, but, um, <laughs> you know. Which is so interesting to write such a contemporary book, like a post-contemporary book. I'm going to start calling it post-contemporary. I'm not down with that. Dreadful, yeah. that. I mean, it's probably as much influenced by TV show structures yeah. and things like that, film, um, video games, music. Yeah. All of these things are really important to me, like as important, if not more, than the stuff I grew up reading. So, like, for example, I, I listened to John Luther Adams, um, uh, his, his piece, Become Ocean, um, which is about an hour long, when the... Pulitzer Prize for music a few years ago and I listened to that constantly on repeat the whole time I wrote mm-hmm. the book because mm-hmm. it just started to activate a sense in me then that I, it was time to write like mm-hmm. if I just put that on and start listening so stuff like that was important I mean even aesthetically video games like um, Fallout mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. set in the you know destroyed future I love stuff like that um, and then you know movies so directors like Michael Haneke will, will never you know they can't not leave a mark on you so mm-hmm. Um, I feel like even structurally, stuff like that, and longer form, kind of the modern HBO TV series style, mm-hmm. they do a lot with narrative and, and structure that, um, you know, I'm sure I could find in contemporary novels if I want to, but mm-hmm. I just don't really read that much, so a lot of yeah. it comes to me from, from that medium instead. 
It's really interesting because I do feel, um, you know, that that the fact that, yeah, I'm really interested in the narrative function, narrative function of, of video games. Like it's mm. it's you know like I have someone who lives in my house who doesn't read, but um, they are really they get that narrative fix from video games, and mm. it's just I just think it's such a like I mean you know like. If I show you a book, how fucking boring is that? You know, like, I mean, you know, like, you can have this world and you can go wherever you want. Oh, you can have these little things that, and I just think, I don't know, like, I feel so excited about it. I love what you say about Like, I just, I don't know, like, I feel very excited about, yeah, like, it just seems to get bigger and bigger. And it's democratized, right? Like, storytelling to me. Like, the novel, if you have a socially critical aim, the novel is not the most reasonable method to pick to, to get it out there. Mm. Um, I mean, you look at like a, a new video game, like there's a new Far Cry video game coming out next yeah. year, which is you typically roam around a landscape killing a bunch of people. And this time it's set in southern states of the US. Yeah, yeah. And like that's been, hasn't even been really demoed properly yet, I don't think. And people are talking about about the issue you know yeah. about about evangelism in the south and whether that could lead to militancy or well it has already i guess but um you know and that's not even again it's not even been released yet whereas yeah. a novel i think it's just a bit harder to do because i mean i had to use the word but it's it's kind of bourgeois now right yeah. like being able to read novels like being able to sit down and enjoy a novel is is yeah you have to make time for it and it's much easier and much more involving especially if you've had a long day to watch like Game of Thrones or something yeah. instead, um, yeah. rather than read the book versions of it. Yeah. And maybe that's just preference, and I'm projecting it. But I feel like the storytelling itself has gotten more democratic as a result of it. And I think, I think, has there been a trailer for that Far Cry? Because I feel like I watched it I in so, a video yeah. store the other. Yeah, like um, and I remember even you know like um, talking to Toki about it. Like mm. it was kind of they were kind of like oh, you know, and there's all this interesting philosophy stuff that's going on about good and bad and this and that. And mm. I just I just think it's so great. And I totally agree. I think, I don't know, I, I just, yeah, I totally agree. I project away. Project <laughs> cool. away. Right. Hey, we're, mile, we're miles from your book, which is always, no, that's it's cool. always fun. No, that's so it's always fine. fun. Um, can you talk a little bit about the cow? About can Milky you Moon? talk about Milky Moon? <laughs> like that, um, I don't know. Can you, what do you, what do I want to ask you? I'm trying to think of a clever no, question, but I just, It's wow. a sad one, isn't it? Genius. <laughs> Fucking genius. Oh, but yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, um, I just, it just seems so, the woeful cry of Milky Moon. I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah. You know, Milky Moo almost came about like secondarily in that I wanted to tell a story in four chunks with totally disparate kind of character groups, settings, um, phrasing, everything. Um, and I needed one consistent kind of <laughs> thing to be along the way to stay familiar. And then I thought, well, you know, the book should probably tell the cow's story, even if the cow's not always a part of it or always in frame. So... Um, you know, there was no, like, the, this is more aesthetic to me than, like, a logical or political kind of mm, thing. Mm. Like, a giant, rippling, muscular cow that's, like, got kind of proto-language abilities and is being developed in labs probably to produce a great amount of milk, but by accident has a consciousness and 
thus kind of suffers as a result. Um, because, I mean, to me, it's just like predation, right? Like in general, yeah. the relationship we have with, with the dairy industry and with cows. I mean, we get them pregnant, we kill the children, and then we take the milk from another species. Mm. And we do that, like, every, everywhere. I mean, well, yeah. basically, you know. Um, and that in and of itself, when you just take a step back, is enough to feel like it's an absurd thing. And... If you had one character, so Milky Moo, kind of exemplifying one end of that relationship, she would be revered as the national pride of New Zealand, mm. but she would also be subjected to the worst leeching and <laughs> yeah. parasitism you could possibly conceive of. Um, so, yeah, she's like the natural accident of, like, a concept and a visual thing about just a giant cow that can kind of groan and, and gurgle and dance a little bit. Um, and I didn't really want to go too much into the background of yeah. how she came to be because yeah. that was more, <laughs> more fun. To but it, ju- it just feels so right. And I love, I love that you're talking about it being sort of an aesthetic decision as well mm. because um, she, she does sit quite differently to some of the other characters as well. And like I really like... I, I don't feel the political weight of her either. That's no. the thing. Like even though even though you know I'm vegan, I I don't feel like she sits sort of to stand for. But I mm. just think it is this oddness, you yeah. know. Like it's this weird thing that we do, and it's just like that's weird. And um, I got to um I this I'm gonna tell the story. I'm gonna tell <laughs> the story. But um yeah, I I never met cows. Like I didn't really. I always thought they were a bit scary, yeah, and I never really I never really liked them. But. Um, we were volunteering at a um, place where some cows had gone to um, live. Um, and for starters, the thing that blew my mind is that cows' udders don't look like that if you don't milk them. Right. Which blew my mind. Like, because they, they, like? they just slip back up into the body and they just look. Yeah. It's just incredible. Like, because I thought that's how, you know, as a kid, I'd always drawn cows with the udders coming down. Yeah. But <laughs> once they've got no milk in them, they just, you know, kind of just go back into the cow kind of thing but um the other thing is we got to stand with them in a field and like i have never loved an animal more than these cows they are so (laughs) cool but they're huge Mm. and these cows in particular like to lean on you and i thought that's you just captured that so well you know just this idea that they are really muscly and they're Mm. really big and they could fucking kill you if you wanted if they wanted to but there's just something I don't know. They're very yeah. calming animals. Oh my god, I sound like a no, 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 totally. They and they seem so voiceless, right? Just these big, yeah. heavy, kind of leaden things, just wandering around and are just subjected to life rather than live life yeah. somehow. Like, yeah. And it's sad because they are quite intelligent animals, right? Uh, I don't know, but I just I do think that's what's so interesting about. That's why I think Milky Moo is such a great character as well. Is that the version we've got of these animals. We've got the, you know, like sheep were kind of like goats, you know, they were kind of crafty, mm. and, you know, like they were, and now we weigh them down with wool and, you know, they can't go very far and they yeah. die and, you know, and like, you know, and I always wonder maybe cows were more like bison or, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I just, yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, I just think it's really brilliant. And the, the other thing that kind of blows my mind about cows now in New Zealand is it's special to be a cow, right? You're part of yeah. the brighter future if you're a cow yeah. and you're helping New Zealand <laughs> be better off and like... The amount of money they pump into cows from like R and D grants uh, yeah. alone into like just biological research of how you can get the most milk out of a cow, how you can nourish a cow to produce more, um, how you can strengthen the tissue on the teat. Mm. Um, you know, we spend a lot of money treating them like milk machines, 
so it just kind of adds to that passivity to me that yeah. they're like these things we do things to rather than live with and I'm not a heavy like I don't want to lie down no, in a field no. with a bunch of cows no. and hang out all day but um you know but it is so interesting eh? that something should you know they are kind of like flesh machines you know and mm. like and it does yeah, I don't know, like, I, I think the most disturbing... Oh, sorry, we're talking about cows now. Is it no, okay? No, no, just, okay I, just, I was just thinking one of the most disturbing things I ever um, learned about, like, I did some work um, editing some um, practice notes for um, the... Um, I think it was for Federated Farm... It was for one of the dairy industry. And mm. um, there's a there's um, a tone that drives them crazy. Right. And, like, yeah, and, like, they were talking about how you have to make sure that the that the shed that they're in doesn't ring at that tone because some of the electricity can sometimes... Oh, wow. And they've got this sort of extra sense. And I was just thinking, wow, <laughs> we're just putting so much energy into this. And also then you get the thing like, really, we're just going to kill them when we're finished. You know, yeah, like, it's yeah. just, I don't know, I love it. What I is it? So it's like it. a pitch or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, oh, wow. there's some kind of noise that drives them crazy. I'll probably find out that's not true when I made it up. <laughs> no. That often happens. We can just say it was in Milk Island. Yeah, it was in Milk that, Island. Yeah. You read it, was it, was it in, there. It was in Milk Island. That's where it goes. <laughs> um, I feel like I should ask you this, but I didn't want to. No, um, no. Are you gonna Are you gonna write poetry again? Ready? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I come to the I come to the page feeling like a real weirdo now trying mm. to write poetry. I just mm. it feels wrong. Like I'm lying or cheating. Like I don't like I've like I've entered a party I wasn't allowed to go into and now I'm trying to like pretend I fit in yep. uh, the line break it just fucks me up like yep. you know and you're like oh is that a tactful enjambment or is that just like putting something arbitrarily in there to break a sentence so it looks like poetry rather than prose and, and then you get this really <clears throat> dense symbolic poetry and it's kind of our culture here I guess in a way that kind of domestic but distant real heavily symbolic thing and I can't do that like I, I'm just too manic and, and stuff so when it comes to like compression which is the, the big thing in poetry I just <laughs> suck like I so you know I mean, I've written like maybe four or five poems since my master's book yeah. here which I never released so yeah. I still have a whole book sitting there and I've done maybe four or five since that but I I mean, what do you do with it, right? Like, do you send it to the journals and have it read by 10 other poets? Mm. I mean, obviously, that's not the only way. Like, it, you know, we've seen in the last year or two that, like, some poets do get really, really well read. Um, mm. But for me, it feels like I'm trying to wear somebody else's clothes or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. I started as a poet. Mm. And, um, yeah, I Did totally... Did you before Yeah, yeah, yeah before... For, right? Well, before I even... Yeah, like, I... And I relate to all that. Like, I don't know how I ended up writing poetry. Mm. Like, that's what I'm really interested in. I look back at that moment and think, what the fuck was I thinking? Yeah, totally. And I think what I was thinking was it was really hard to find a fiction course, but it was easy to find a poetry. Yes. I don't know, like... Yeah. And I just... I think I had this idea that I wanted to be a poet because it seemed important I don't yeah, know like yeah. it seemed I don't know oh, totally yeah and I remember just giving myself the freedom to write to the end of the page and I was just like <laughs> fuck this yeah. is amazing once but, you've gone back I mean, yeah. you don't have to do that I mean it just feels alien like if I do poetry again it'll be prose poetry yeah. 
And then I don't really know what the difference is between prose poetry and prose, except maybe it's shorter. Yeah. I don't know. But if then I can't write short either, so... Yeah, if you find out, can you let me know? Yeah, then yeah, maybe we'll, we'll make a mint. We can make know, up a rule like, or something. Yeah, yeah it'll be wild. <laughs> um, because I think, I think this is the thing that I always find interesting, is that a lot of fiction writers that I really like have, have written poetry before or read poetry. And I think, you know, I mean, definitely in some of the voice. Like, I mean, yeah, I don't hmm. know. I, I don't know. It's just, I just think it is interesting that, I do, I do know poets that have gone to this dark side and gone back, you know what right. I mean? And I just don't, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen for me. I wrote a poem last year. It was really bad. Really? It was kind of like a mimic of something that, I, yeah, it was dreadful. It was I, so bad. That's, I can still get that feeling, right, when, like, I read a poem and I'm like, mm. this is incredible. Yeah. But yeah. then I'm just trying to imitate somebody else's style, so Yeah, and hard. I think that's the thing, is I think that I really liked reading poetry better than I liked writing it. Yeah, and I think yeah. you know because I still love reading poetry. Like yeah. I was just, I don't know. I was reading Hannah Metner's book the other day, and I was just thinking, "Fuck, this is amazing!" Yeah. You know, like this makes me happy. You know, like it's really, really good. And I think there are so many bad poets as well that when you find a good poet, it is just incredible, right? Like somebody yeah. who can say that much in in that little yeah space. That's pretty remarkable. <laughs> I think I was one of the bad. Poets. Uh, me, me too. I, I was, me too. Yeah, it's I was, terrifying. I got really, a lot of. Uh, Advice, polite advice on how to write poetry <laughs> from this place. <laughs> polite advice is always good. Um, can I ask you? I think I've only got a couple more questions to ask oh, you, cool. but one I am really interested in is the transition from the section, you know, one section to the other. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just wondering. Um, I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I think that works really, really well. Um, I cheated a bunch of times, mm-hmm. so yeah. where I naturally didn't have one chapter ending in the beginning of the next, um, switching perspectives obviously between yeah. them, I just made one up and just brought in a third person, no, no, a first person, me, yeah, to yeah, say, here's yeah. the next chapter. Um, I don't know, I don't really like any logical rules, so I did that where it was convenient at other times, so that, for example, I did that where I cheated between the first and the second one mm. between the second and third then that's a direct kind yeah. of run on and then between the third and the fourth again i just slipped back into a first person god voice and was like yo this is what's happening um here's what's next it was just I it's just, just easier right i so loved it as well <laughs> really? and it like, actually I worked. Oh, yeah good. <laughs> i really love it i really love it when people just uh they're kind of like oh, fuck forget the artifice because mm. I want to get you to hear and this is yep. how I'm going to do it I just find it really satisfying yeah and I think I remember one that I think something I read that left that mark on me that I remembered I could do that was reading um, Breakfast of Champions by Kurt oh, Vonnegut for yeah. the first time yeah. where he enters the narration yeah. um, later on and just thought like well it didn't that wasn't that awkward you know no. it wasn't like rule breaking extreme like makes me feel uncomfortable it was just a clever way of I don't know, shattering all of your expectations and helpfully moving along the plot however you wanted to, whenever you wanted to. And that's just that wonderful thing that, um, I don't know, anything that kind of breaks the artifice of the book I'm really mm. into as well. Like, I, I really, I, I get almost queasy now if I'm reading a book and I fall into it. You know how you just yeah, fall yeah. into that and you're just suspended, I don't know what you call it, but you're just like oh, immersed in it. Sometimes maybe I like that, but I really like it when I'm not allowed to forget that this is a machine and this yes. is how the machine works and there's someone behind it and you know especially I think with a book like this which is kind of um, sort of dealing with um, media and people's experience and you know I just hmm. think it works really really well and that's well. the narrative style we're used to right and in media and, and stuff especially I mean we do signpost in reality yeah. we don't rely on 
vague takeovers from chapters of our lives to the next. No, we say, no. I'm going to do this now, and then it happens. <laughs> and then it happens. So, yeah. What are you going to do now? Um, oh, I don't mean tonight. I mean, no, they work. Um, uh, have, I know, like you, literary, literary. Yeah, like what, you're on your way to Auckland. I know that much. Yeah, um, I've got quite a lot of book stuff happening over the next month or so. I've got a piece coming out next week, um, probably. Well, yes, on the spin-off um, oh, about fighting and about punching from oh, my own life nice so uh we like a bit of that. that and then i'm doing uh doing a launch oh not a launch sorry a reading with uh dom hoey who's yep. just written iceland and ria masai uh that's in auckland on the 18th at time out books oh great and then i'm doing the dunedin young writers festival and i'm doing a couple other Things. The program for young writers looks amazing. I just looked at it last now? night. Oh, yeah, okay. I, th- I don't know if it came out last night or um, if it came out a little bit later, but it just looks amazing, man. Yeah, it's pretty good, day. Such eh? a great festival. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to say or do there. I've never been to a literary festival before. <laughs> Me neither. So, <laughs> really? Oh, <laughs> no. wow. I've cheered at one once. That yeah. was easy because they just give you things to read and you just read those. But yeah. you're in trouble. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm fucked. In front of a, maybe a polite audience? I don't know. Uh, uh, they won't be that polite in Dunedin. No, I not. So, so you and Dom, I think I saw you and Dominic down here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And those, the, 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 that worked really well, right? Like I think Iceland yeah. does, Iceland and Milk Island seem to, even though they're completely different books, mm. they just seem to work quite well together, right? Yeah, it was, it's, really, it's really cool. Like I don't have many like writer friends like yeah. I don't have like a, a writing group or whatever and I don't yeah I mean I, you know I don't think it's necessary <laughs> to, no. to write well or whatever but um, Dom just is from similar background to me in the punk yeah. and, and hardcore scenes and stuff and has come at it from the same odd angle as you know he's not part of the traditional publishing apparatus I guess and um, you know he's written he's written a novel that has that DIY kind of punk spirit yeah. and I just like it and he's just an awesome dude so yeah. it's yeah. nice doing stuff with somebody like that where I don't feel like the only weirdo in the room um, <laughs> which is good because this um that is something that you know like I am huge fan of um your publisher um mm. Lawrence and Gibson um I always have to look at them because I always want to call them Lawrence and something else oh yeah I don't I forget Gibson <laughs> but um yeah I I don't know like um I I was lucky enough to go and watch Brian Van making his last book up there and oh, like, cool. with the intersection of sort of rebel press and the fact that writers make their books and mm. you know it's just so wonderful um did you like did you approach them or did you know about them before you wrote the you know before you were looking for a publisher was was publishing important while you were reading this like um, writing this rather like did you think this yeah. is just for me or were you thinking no I'd quite like other people to read um, it yeah I, I don't <coughs> want someone to publish it like mm. I I would love to be able to to indulge my sensibilities just for myself in that yeah. way but I think with something of this length and magnitude it's like it has to be a communicative act or else yeah. I'm just a mad person, like, um, <laughs> sitting down and imagining a dairy prison for myself. Like, yeah. that wouldn't go well. Um, it's actually, it's a weird story how I met Murdoch and this all got started. We were, uh, there was an exhibition at Garrett Street called Unrecognised, which was to raise money for the legal defence mm-hmm. of the um, folks who were arrested during the Otawera raids. Um, the 18 was it Operation 8 what was the documentary I can't remember how many anyway um, we was like a collaborative exhibition uh, different artists brought in different work to auction to raise money for them 
and I'd made up this fake kit of parliamentary souvenirs from the year 2014, which at the time was three years in the future. Awesome. So I was pretending like, oh, here's some souvenirs, and I had like John Key's Sleepy Time Smile Helmet, which was like <laughs> this number eight wire device that could make you smile at night, so you mastered it. Um, I had Peter Dunn's annotated Bible pages, um, Judith Collins' personal safety device, all of this stuff. On oh, Paula Bennett's pudding for families, a Aww. giant pudding that slowly went rotten. Um, anyway, so I produced a fake flyer for it, saying because I wanted to be anonymous with this, because I mm. think I was working in politics at the time, and pretended it was a conjoined effort of the Sensible Sentencing Trust and Federated Farmers to raise money for a giant prison island. And sitting next to me at the exhibition was Murdoch, who was selling strips of the Terrorism Suppression Act soaked in berry compote to eat with cereal. Um, Very Murdoch. And he got chatting to me and saw the flyer and said, oh, I'd read a book about that. So um, I was like, well, I've actually been thinking about that. So that was about three years before I finished the draft yeah. but I always kind of had that tentative relation with him I didn't know if he'd actually publish it and yeah. I didn't know Murdoch very well yeah. um, and you know we, we negotiated there was lots he didn't like in my first few drafts yeah. and he yeah. offered some really good advice on shaping it so even through till last year I didn't know if they were going to publish it yeah um, but I think yeah eventually he came around I'm to the so, idea I am so happy they published it <laughs> holy shit Yay! And it's just it's a hard it's a hard sell, you know, for like a first time novelist as well to be having this kind of like overly ambitious kind of almost mad Machiavellian approach to the future or something. I don't know. What other way um, is there? What yeah. other way is there? I think it sits really well. I think it sits really well with a lot of the other stuff too. Like yeah. I just think I don't know. Like I, just I mean, I love Brandon's writing and Murdoch's oh, as well. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, um, sorry, Richard Merrill's writing as well. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, two different people. Two different, two different um, people. Yeah. No, so. I just think it's awesome. Oh my god, uh, I think I'm done. Is there anything else you want to say? Um, I not well, uh, the, uh, no. Just oh. thank you for oh, thank talking. You. And thanks for asking me really awesome oh, questions. It was, really, it was really cool. Sorry if I rambled or anything. No, and, you were um, amazing. I just uh, it's nice talking about this with you. <laughs> and, and there'll be lots more talking if you go to Time Out. You'll be able to see oh, yes. you. And if yeah, you go to yeah. Dunedin, you'll be able to see you. I'll put links up on the thing so that people can awesome. find out how to get there. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you.